wasn't until I'd say maybe five years ago or so that we really went through and we did the hard work of saying, let's let's be very specific. And let's think about the, the slice of the market that we really want to build our, our product for. And I think ultimately it was around that five year ago mark when we really started hiring people onto our team. And I think more so than for just ourselves, having that specificity was key so that we could articulate to both our product team, our engineering team, our marketing team, exactly who, who we were building for. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan. And today on the show, John is joined by Ryan Kuhn, who sold his company Avail to Realtor.com, a division of News Corp, for around five times revenue. As you listen to today's episode with Ryan, you may be wondering what he got for Avail. So I did some digging for you and found the News Corp 10K filing, which listed the deal at $36 million in cash and up to $8 million in a three-year earnout. And I've linked to the 10K filing from News Corp in the show notes section of Ryan's episode, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you about today's guest, Ryan Kuhn, who started Avail, which is a platform designed for DIY landlords to manage their tenants. Now, during this episode, I want you to look out for the part where Ryan rebranded the company, leading to its growth and ultimately a very lucrative exit. Here to share with John the full story is Ryan Kuhn. Enjoy. Ryan Kuhn, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. Really excited to be talking with you today. Yeah, me too. So, Avail, I want you to explain the business model, assuming the person listening has never heard of Avail. Sure. So Avail, the company, is really a platform that helps independent, really do-it-yourself landlords efficiently manage residential rental properties and provide a better experience for the renters that live in those homes. So going a layer deeper, so picture men and women like the two of us who are busy professional, maybe own a couple of rental properties on the side. Um, historically, those individuals have managed their properties with spreadsheets, pen and paper, paper checks, text messages, phone calls. And what our platform does, our, our software does, is really brings everything the landlord and renter needs to do online in one place. So that means all of the listing of a vacant home, we, we can take care of that. You can do that with our tool. We'll get the listing out there on all the popular websites. The tenant screening will make sure that the person renting your home is able to pay the rent and that they'll likely take care of the home or take care of the property. We have digital lease agreements so that all of the contract can be created, signed online. We help facilitate rent payments from renter to landlord. And then you know, lastly, help with the maintenance request. The maintenance requests, yeah. So, like, if I've got a leaky toilet, I can just upload an image and say, "Help!" <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> someone will help. That's I got right. it. It's it's funny as you describe it. It reminds me. I just got back on the weekend. My son and I did a mountain biking trip, and we we did an Airbnb. And so 
the the correspondence I had with the owner of the home was through the Airbnb app. It wasn't through text or email. When I wanted to look at the rules of the road and like what time I needed to leave, I just went into the Airbnb app and he'd uploaded all the information for me. And it kind of sounds a little bit similar. Were you guys inspired by Airbnb at all? Or Yeah. So I think of Airbnb... The, the core part of the Airbnb is connecting the traveler with homes that are out there. Then they do all of this other stuff on the back end around facilitating payments and the rules, et cetera. Where I draw the distinction and I think about our product is we don't try and get in the kind of landlord renter matchmaking. But as soon as that match is made, we'll do everything after. So... I think there's a lot of tools, whether it's um, realtor.com or apartments.com, et cetera, that those are great marketplaces for connecting the renter and landlord. But there's still so much work that has to get done the, uh, the other 11 months out of the year. Yeah. And, and for folks who haven't checked out Avail yet, um, you, know, you integrate with the big platforms, obviously now realtor.com being the new acquirer. Um, but you're not necessarily a marketplace as I think of a marketplace. Was that an intentional decision to not try to become a marketplace? It was very intentional. In the early days, we looked and we said that other people are solving that problem. And there were tools, there were platforms out there solving that. But as a landlord and as a renter myself, I had all of these other pain points that no one was addressing and that we're really just left to spreadsheets and the, the pen and paper, if you will. And that's really the problem that my co-founder, Lawrence, who I started the company with, that he and I were really trying to solve was that pain that we felt personally. How'd you meet Lawrence? Lawrence and I were actually college roommates. Uh, really? So he and I met each other at the University of Illinois, my freshman year, his sophomore year. And then became close friends. We were roommates down in Champaign, where University of Illinois is. Lived together for a year outside of school up here in Chicago. And stayed in touch. We, we had worked together a little bit, but it wasn't until starting Avail that we were really linked together at the hip. How did going to business with a buddy, I'm sure you, you know, did keg stands together and all the rest <laughs> of the stuff people do at Illinois... I'm trying to like visualize both the pros and cons of going into business with someone who knows you at at our worst <laughs> at that level of kind of intimacy. Yeah, it, it's a good question. I think for Lawrence and me, we had a great relationship. We had worked together in some capacity on like school projects, and we had invested in a couple of real estate things together. So we knew that working relationship was, was good. And then on a personal level, he and I just got along so well. And one of the things that I'm really grateful of is having that co-founder. And as I think about those shared experiences, one of the things that I, I think um, personally, if I could go back and do it again, I would never again start a company by myself. I think it, it helps so much to have that person that you can confide in, you can share the highs and the lows with day to day. Did the friendship 
sustain? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking this question. For a lot of people I know that went into business together with friends, the, the relationship was from a professional level was, was really, really strong. They succeeded together, but the friendship itself became somewhat strained and didn't necessarily outlast the business relationship. Did what about in the case of Lawrence? Did you experience those tensions? Have you been able to kind of sustain the friendship or is it more of a business relationship? Yeah, I think it's so for us, the, the quick answer is we've sustained both. We've got a great business relationship, partnership. We've also maintained that friendship where he was just over at my house with his daughters two weeks ago for a barbecue. And, and I know his girlfriend that he used with now and like we're, we're very close socially. Um, but I, I'd say that 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 partnership has been like any other relationship or a marriage, if you will, where there's highs and lows and sure. things work and things don't. So it's it's I've been, I think, very fortunate to be able to work with him. I want to go back to the business model for a second for folks, uh, for me and, and others who maybe aren't as familiar with Avail. So the target was DIY landlords of up to 10 units. I got to tell you, I love the specificity of this target market because immediately I can put myself in or outside of that segment. What went into the precision you use? Because a lot of startups, I think, would have been tempted to say, well, we're software for landlords and or we're software for small landlords. But no, you got to the level of specificity that DIY landlords with less than 10 units. Talk to me about that. Yeah. And honestly, John, that was one of the things that we screwed up is I think if you went back and looked 10 years ago, we, we weren't specific. We, we went at it and we said, look, we want to solve problems for people like us. But we never really defined who that, who that target person really, really was. And early on, we said, look, if you manage properties on behalf of other owners, Maybe you're a target customer, but it wasn't until I'd say maybe five years ago or so that we really went through and we did the hard work of saying, let's, let's be very specific and let's think about the, the slice of the market that we really want to build our, our product for. And I think ultimately, it was around that five-year-ago mark when we really started hiring people onto our team. And I think more so than for just ourselves, having that specificity was key so that we could articulate to both our product team, our engineering team, our marketing team, exactly who, who we were building for and more importantly, who we weren't building for. So smart. Talk to me about the pricing model because I understand a lot of, I, I've got, I was just doing some research before the call, roughly 500,000 landlords using the tool of which 90% use the, the freemium version and obviously 10% of the paid. Are those numbers roughly about where they are today? Or it's in these, they've grown a lot since the, the uh, acquisition. Yeah, yeah, those, those numbers are, are fairly accurate. So on the business model, I think like a lot of other successful uh, software companies, we have what's called a freemium model. And what that means is that we've got both a free tier where people can come in, they will never hit a credit card wall, they can use all of our features and functionality for free. Or if they need a little bit more customization or better features, better functionality, they can upgrade. 
So think of it similar to a Spotify or a Dropbox where they've got both the free and the paid tiers. Now, what we've seen over time and we've, we've tried to optimize is improving that conversion rate. And we've, we've tested religiously with different models of do we include this in the free or the paid? And what does that do to conversion rates? And I would say that's a never-ending journey because things change, competitors change, and we've, we've got to always stay top of mind and keep our customers in, in the center of what we're doing. What was the most ex- surprising experiment you did as it relates to improving the conversion rate from the free to the paid? Surprising meaning totally counterintuitive results. You were blown away by the result of the test. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest things that, that was really surprising to me was maybe five, six years ago, we really started testing pricing. And one of our close competitors had previously been charging something like $9 per unit per month. So if you've got three, three rental homes that you manage, so three times nine, 27, you're paying $27 per month to use their product. Now, and at the time we were something similar to that. Now, this competitor almost overnight went from charging that much to their product was completely free. They had just closed a round, round of venture capital funding and basically took the approach of let's grow at all costs. And they were based out on the West Coast and they said, just grow, grow, grow. And what we did is then a few months later, we actually implemented a test where we said, you know, half of the people that come to a landing page will see our existing pricing. And the other half we're going to send to this landing page that is also completely free. I don't know whether our competitor did this analysis, but I was very surprised to see our conversion rate, not from from that landing page to sign up, but from landing page to actually like fully using the product, actually having that price there, having that paywall actually led to more people converting and using the product, which was just very counter. I thought people would immediately gravitate towards free, but what it actually showed us was if you if you value your product, people will see that there's value there too, and they will end up engaging with it and using it. That blows my mind. And really cool. It begs the question, why continue with the free version then? Why not take that experiment to its logical conclusion and say, well, let's dump the free model altogether and just go straight to, you want it, you pay for it. Yeah, I th- we've tried that. We've tried that. And that also doesn't work quite as well. So, somewhat counterintuitive. But uh, what we've found is that it's good to have people have that plan where people can come in and try before they buy. Where similar to you go to Costco on the weekends to stock up on paper towels and those things. And they are handing out the free samples and you can get your free little slice of frozen pizza before they ask you to buy the, the whole frozen pizza. Sure. Um, we, we've found that that model works really well. And so you kind of 
gated it based on feature access as opposed to number of units. So it wasn't like you can manage one unit for free and then the second you have to pay, it was more gated based on the features. What did you learn about the way to optimize a freemium model around what features to gate, which ones to put behind the paywall, et cetera? Yeah, and you actually bring up another thing that we tested. We did have for a period of time where you would get your first unit for free. And then with two or more, you would have to pay. And honestly, the, the biggest challenge with that was a communication issue. It was people, the our target customers would call our customer support line and, and ask. So it's $5 per unit after the first. Well, if I have three units, how much am I paying per month? And <laughs> still blow, blows my mind, but um, that, that happened. And so we really tried to optimize around a few things. So obviously conversion rate was the most important. We also looked at from the customer standpoint, what's the easiest to understand? What's the like so stupid, simple that people can get their head around? And then number three is we tried to optimize for what's going to result in the lowest number of people contacting us about pricing. So as we thought about those three things, it was really um, trying to optimize for those three and saying what, what model makes the most sense. Got it. And you landed around five bucks a unit, as I understand, $5 per unit for the- $5 per unit per month on the premium plan. We do yeah. still have the free tier and 90% and of landlords are on that free tier and they, they do get a lot of value out of our product. And one of the biggest questions or biggest uh, pieces of feedback that we get from those folks around pricing is, we can't believe that this is free. <laughs> so doing something right there. Absolutely. But 10% of folks do convert to the paid version around that number. Yeah. Yep. That's helpful. It does also lead me to how you finance the business. Because although this sounds like an incredible business, when I think about the number of landlords, the number of people at rent, it's you know in the millions and millions and millions. At five bucks a month per unit, that, that's going to take a long time to scale. So I'm imagining you guys didn't cash flow this yourselves. You had to raise some money along the way. You're right. We did raise money along the way, um, both to invest in product, but for us, the, the dollars of capital that we raised, it was much more around raising capital to grow and really capital to accelerate customer acquisition. So for us, we do have on a unit level of profitable business, right? Where the average landlord, let's say that he or she owns two units. So they're paying us $10 a month, 120 a year. On average, that customer will be with us four years. So four we'll years. make roughly, roughly 500 bucks over that customer's lifetime that they're with us. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, we have to go out and spend marketing dollars to get them on day one or day zero, really. Mm -hmm. And so that, for us, that works out to be roughly $100 per customer. So we pay back in roughly a year. Now, but if we go out and spend 
something like $100,000 this month on marketing to get 1,000 customers, it's going to take a while for them, them to repay that investment and, and stay with us. Now, we have to do the same next month and the same the month after. And so for us, being here based in the Midwest and having a more conservative approach to capital, we really tried to only raise venture dollars around investing in that growth. So then um, that, was, that was more our mindset around, around capital. We did, over the course of building the company, raise three rounds of venture capital, um, raise a, a cumulative about $10 million in outside funding. And, and how did the, the, the pre-money valuation of the company evolve between the three rounds? Like, where were you in the beginning? And by the third round, what, what, what kind of pre-money valuation was the company uh, valued at? Yeah, so we, we initially started raising capital pretty early. And so both being first-time founders, being based in the Midwest, the pre-money valuation on our first round was in the very, very low single-digit millions. It was, it was very low. And then each subsequent round, we, would, we had proven some, some more milestones. We had attracted more customers, increased our revenue. And so over time, that valuation continued to grow with the business. Which is a good way of saying, I'm not going to tell you the answer to the question, <laughs> which is totally fine. But the pre month, like the, I'm assuming you didn't go through a down round, like the, the value of the company was increasing at each time you went to, to, to go for more money. Yeah. Fortunately, we, we never got into a place where the valuation had outgrown the business. We were always very cognizant of trying to stay within within what made sense to again us as midwest founders which i think yeah. is really important um and for us it was never like let's go out and, and take a big risky bet because if, if, if a first-time founder let's say goes out and raises at a crazy high valuation you, you're setting yourself up with a lot of expectations and if you don't meet those you're either going to raise at a down round which is bad for you personally, or you're not going to get subsequent funding, which is even worse. Yeah. 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 And we've talked a lot on the show about, about some of the dangers of that. So that, that certainly has come through in, in different kind of thematically in different, in different uh, episodes. So that's, so that was the, the funding journey, three rounds uh, of increasing sort of valuation each time, total 10 million raised across the three rounds. Knowing what you know now and having the benefit of hindsight, which of course none of us do at the time, what might you do differently about the way you approached raising money for the business? Knowing what you know now. And again, none of us have a silver ball. We like no, no one can know this, but I think I'm asking this question for an entrepreneur listening who's kind of at the very early stages of, should I raise money? Maybe, could I, maybe I could bootstrap it. And, and they're just trying to not make a mistake. So what would you say to that question? Yeah, I think I, I've got 
maybe two thoughts. The, the first is a bit tongue in cheek, uh, which is I wouldn't be a first time founder, right? I think there's, there's just so much, um, not opposition, but it's for a venture capital investor, there's so much risk placed on first time founders that you're, the valuation, the terms that you'll get are really not that attractive because there's just more risk. Now, I think similar to what we were just talking about, where the, the real piece of advice or, or experience that, that I went through is I think in our very early rounds of funding, there was, we were, I don't even want to say greedy, but we, we were a little bit, um, had really high goals and, and a high bar in terms of what terms that we thought would be acceptable. And I, I wish that in hindsight, we had just said, look, we're going to accept that we're first-time founders. We're not going to get great terms. Let's just optimize for speed. Get the round of funding done as quick and easy as possible and move on and get back to building the business. I think we did spend, unfortunately, a bit too much time trying to optimize for things like valuation, dilution, et cetera, versus saying, look, this is our first startup, our first company we're building. We're going to optimize for speed, get back to work. And then maybe on that second or third company, if and when we get there, that's when we can be a little bit pickier. I'm so surprised to hear you say that because it's it's almost the inverse advice I've heard. We had Haroon Maktazarda on the call uh, maybe six weeks ago, and his uh, his advice was the opposite. He's like, you know, you got to really because he he had um, the VC that invested in his company had a two or three x liquidity preference, and it kind of washed out half of the value of the equity. And and so he his advice was like, no, no, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta really understand these terms before you sign, especially as a first time founder. So I, I want to drill down a little bit. It, it, it sounds like you, you know there there must have been some life experience that you had that 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 because you were so choosy and selective on the terms and kind of pushing back for some of the preferred terms that you wanted that your that the the whole process took too long. Maybe explain that because it does sound kind of intuitive. It does sound counterintuitive to me. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't think what I'm maybe saying and what Haroon was saying are, are counter. I think both can actually be true. And I think what he was mentioning around understanding the terms, 100% absolutely agree. I think that our experience was maybe a bit more driven by we, we saw what Similar companies in our space were the pre-money that they were raising at in the Bay Area. And we, we had in our minds that, you know, an early company should be raising above a $10 million pre-money or, or whatever the number was. And I personally, as the founder CEO, I went out and spent a lot of, a lot of time and money traveling to and from the Bay Area trying to talk to those Bay Area VCs. In hindsight, we had a term sheet from a firm here in the Midwest. It was a lower pre-money. I, in hindsight, should have, would have, could I go back, just take the one from the, the firm here in the Midwest, understand the terms, back to Haroon's point, but do the, do the deal, get it done quick, rather than have this like, you know, more 
greedy vision of, hey, a company based in the Bay Area, they're getting valued at double or triple what we were. Um, especially knowing now that, you know, that company didn't grow into the expectations that they had set. Therefore, that two or three X liquidation preference kicked in. And while our, our company ended up selling for less than theirs, like on, on a personal level, probably made out as well or better. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That's super helpful. And thanks for the extra context there. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because you've got a very unique background. I had a chance to check out your LinkedIn profile before we hit record. And you spent some time at BMO Capital Markets on the M&A side. So in a funny way, you've lived this on the other side of the table, if you will, right? An advisor to uh, companies that are looking to sell. And I wondered, now that you've been on both sides of the, the, the kind of table, so to speak, what do you think the M&A professional or the M&A world gets wrong about entrepreneurs? Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that is a, a really good question. And I think that in, in a transaction, I think there's really three, three parties. There's the, the buyer, the seller, and then the advisor. And I think from the, the advisor standpoint, and I was, when I was at BMO working with middle market companies, we probably underappreciated this is that, that fit between buyer and seller. I think that so often advisors can get really hung up on the, the valuation and the terms. And as, as a founder who has now sold a business, who's now in a position where we're actually evaluating and I'm on the team that's evaluating M&A opportunities. I think that the advisor piece, advisors end up looking at things in the dollars and cents. And whether it's a multiple on EBITDA or profit or whatever, if the, if the people don't connect and there's not a, a real meshing of culture and values and those things, the deal never gets done. So I think it's, it's more around that the people aspect that some advisors, not all, but some advisors kind of gloss over and just assume that everything works out. Highest valuation wins kind of thing. And exactly. Understanding the fit. That's super helpful for sure. One other question about the business before we get into why you chose to sell it and, and the realtor deal. Originally, I understand, again, from the LinkedIn, that the original name was Rent Al U. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's the answer to my question. <laughs> yes. Rentalulations? Is that was that the original name? It was Rentalutions. Rentalutions. Okay. So Perfect. it was rental and solutions kind of smush them together. Um, which we thought was like a very functional name for the functional tools that we are providing. What precipitated the change to avail? Exactly what we, we just talked about, where um, in our old office, we were in this like 1,500 square foot loft space here in Chicago, kind of in an old shoe factory warehouse building. And my desk actually backed up to a row of customers, customer support reps. 
And I got so sick and tired day after day of hearing people, no, sorry, sir, it's rentalutions. No, it's it's not rentalations, it's rentalutions. And eventually I just like fists on my desk and I said, we need to change this. And the best story that came out of that was actually um, we, we went through a whole branding exercise, brand discovery process with a firm here in Chicago. And then on a day, I think it was in early May, it was around Cinco de Mayo. I, I sent out an email to our investors and I said, heads up, tomorrow morning, we're unveiling this new brand. And I got a call from one of our investors who said, what are you doing? I love the name Rentitutions. And I had to say to him, I'm like, that's, that's why is, is no one can pronounce the freaking name. And so <laughs> it was, it was something that had to change um, so many lessons that I could probably spend a whole podcast talking about branding do's and don'ts from experience. But um, it was fun. Glad that we did it. Should have done what it sooner. Your, what was your biggest lesson from a branding do's and don'ts. So I appreciate we don't have all day, but I'd love to hear if you could pick one that really pops for you. Yeah. The, the one big one is as a digital business that relies a lot on SEO and kind of the Google uh, domain authority ranking and everything, you don't want to turn off one website and turn on a new URL overnight. You really need to spend a bit of time ahead of time, almost like warming up that new new domain name so that Google can start to prescribe some some credibility to it. So it's not a kind of you, you spent years building this thing up and then you're gonna start from scratch. Right. So when you moved to Avail, you had no no site authority, right? So we had zero. Gosh. And I was I was unfortunately disappointed that we had spent months building this new brand and, and talking to people who had gone through similar things. Unfortunately, and in hindsight, we never talked with anyone who was so dependent on Google for traffic. Mm. And so no one, I mean, no fault of their own, but no one thought, hey, you may want to think about doing this. And for folks who don't know how, can you describe how you how they would identify their uh, authority on Google, like their site authority? Yeah, there's a number of online tools that people can use. the The one that we have used in the past that's most popular is called Moz. So it's moz.com. You you can go type in any any URL, any website, and it'll give you a a, a score. And it's based on one to a hundred where, you know, whitehouse.gov is a 100 out of a hundred. And then all the way down to a brand new website, that'll be a, a zero, one, two, three. Yeah. We had Rand Fishkin, founder of Moz on the show about a couple of years ago. So, so know it well. So Moz.com. And that's important in particular, if you're hoping to drive uh, organic search to your site. It's got to be a high authority site or Google won't recognize it. That's about the extent of my search engine optimization knowledge, which is about zero. <laughs> <laughs> but that's super helpful about the trade, the change in in name and, and uh, what precipitated it. So let's get into the sale. 
like how roughly how big did you get uh, a veil before you wanted to sell and any proxy for size in terms of like revenue or number of employees or you know, how big did you guys get? Yeah, when we when we sold, it was in 2020 and we were at around 40, we were somewhere in the 40 to 50 employee range and kind of low, mid, single digit millions of revenue per year. Got it. Got it. And I, I'd imagine given 40 expensive employees still burning cash at, at that point, I would, I would guess if you were low, you know, mid. I guess we were more mid, mid single digit millions. Um, okay. Going back to that philosophy I shared earlier, we, um, we were always very mindful of what our employee costs were. And we did not use outside venture funding for employee costs. We used okay. it really strictly for growth. Got it. Got it. So mid seven figures revenue, 40 employees. You'd have, you have professional money at the table now through three rounds, a seed, I think, and, and an A round, I believe. So you, you had some investors. What precipitated... Let me ask you a different question. What was the triggering event that made you decide to sell? Well, I think for us, we were in the fortunate position where we we actually didn't sell the company. I think someone else bought the company. And I think there's an important distinction there because, and, and for context, we had raised our last round of funding, which was a $4.5 million round. We raised that six months before we sold. And so we were, we had plenty of cash in the bank. We weren't really burning much. And it wasn't so much that we were out there looking to sell. It was that someone came, came knocking and said, look, we would like to have this business or a business like it. That's what kicked off us really saying, you know, Let's explore this as an option. Now, that, that firm was not the one that ultimately ended up acquiring Avail, hmm. but it, it's the one that kicked off that process. Who was the, if you can share, and if you can't, maybe just genericize it, was it a direct competitor that, that approached you or a, a private equity group? Or what was the, the original company that approached? Yeah, so maybe, maybe um, real quick setting the stage of kind of what was going on at the time. Yeah. We had, um, in late 2019, we were out working to raise our next round of funding. In late 2019, going into 2020, I was still going back and forth to the Bay Area. And then all of a sudden, in March of 2020, COVID hits. And I was out in the Bay Area. And on March 11, 2020... That was the first day that Trump did his Oval Office for shutting the borders speech. That was the first day that the NBA had canceled games. I, I was flying back from San Francisco to Chicago that day. I had had two meetings that day. One was with an investor um, about potentially leading a round of funding. And the second was with a large financial services firm that was interested in partnering. Now, given what everything that happened after that with COVID and, and everything, um, that investor kind of 
fell away. But that partnership with this big financial services firm ended up evolving over a few months to actually um, some pretty kind of hot and heavy M&A discussions where large financial services firm that provides services to both landlords and renters looked at this and said, this could be a way for us to deepen our relationship with our customer. What a perfect Trojan horse, given that, I mean, like these landlords need loans to buy these buildings. <laughs> Here we are. We've got, a, we've got a curated list of landlords to the tune of 500,000 of them. That sounds like a pretty uh, attractive acquisition. What made it not go forward? Yeah, it was, well, number one, to kind of further set the stage, I mean, just to set the, maybe not David and Goliath, like that's not the, the right analogy, but it's. I mean, on the first M&A kickoff call that we did, it was Lawrence, my co-founder, and me, and 50 people from this firm. Five zero. Five zero. And I think 40 of them were attorneys. <laughs> and so awesome. it, ultimately, it was, it was not the right cultural fit. It was not the, the best... Um, it, I'm sure it could have worked out well, but it it was just not set up the right way. Where we were a company with 45 employees total, and they had 50 on a kickoff call, so it it didn't that didn't end up working out. But during that process, we we raised a little bit more capital um, in June of that year. And then ultimately ended up talking with other companies that had also over years expressed interest in M&A um, and then ended up with Realtor.com. Got it. How did that breakup happen with the financial services company? So obviously the kickoff call was good bellwether of like, hey, this is like a weird cultural mix. <laughs> but presumably you, you went on with the call. Like at what point did you or they break it off? Yeah, ultimately the, the point in the process, it got very high up to where their, their C-suite, their, their board looked at this and ultimately said that we are really good at being a financial services firm. We are not a software for landlords that they said, look, there's definite synergy here and we should continue exploring partnership. But I think it really came down to them taking a step back and saying, what are we really good at and what do we want to be known for? And then what are the areas that we may be better off partnering? Because I can, I can, as a, I want to retract something I said earlier. I can, I can imagine it being both a, a tremendous asset to your point, but also a a potential liability. Because you can imagine uh, a financial services company like a bank lending money to a landlord, and there being some implied, uh, you know, good housekeeping facility approval on the property, on what rents could be, on you know whether they're going to collect rent. I mean, they're. Banks have have so much exposure to all that downstream risk that I can see them saying this. We don't want to touch this. Yeah, 
all that jazz. Wow. So when you're raising money along the way, again, three rounds and you're kind of, was Realtor.com or News Corp, their parent company on your list of investors that you were seeking investment funds from? Like, did they see the pitch deck? I, that's a really good question, John. I don't, they were never a company that we had reached out to about investing. However, and I think you recently had Taraj from mm-hmm. GoDaddy right, yeah. on, on the call. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I know he mentioned when he, he spoke with you was building up that list of building those relationships over time. And so I think News Corp Realtor was never one of the companies that we had courted for investment. They were absolutely 100% on my list of companies to cozy up with and get to know and um, spend a lot of time with. Because you did integrate with their data, right? So as a landlord, you could integrate with a realtor.com listing, a rental listing, is that correct? That's right. And so over the eight years or so that we built the company standalone, we were very, very thoughtful and strategic about, let's go out and partner and integrate with the best, the biggest companies in the space, both because it helps our credibility, but we also, in the back of our mind, thought you know they could potentially one day be an acquirer. Along with Apartments.com, I think they're, they're LoopNet, right? Uh, another big publicly traded company, I believe, in the space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we were, um, I think, for all the things that we really screwed up along the way, and there were there were plenty. I think maybe the one thing that I'm grateful we did was was how we thought about building those partnerships and relationships. And and so it sounds like you were fairly intentional about that. Meaning there were, and I don't mean to make this sound the way it's going to sound, but there were ulterior motives. It wasn't just to have a, like a good working relationship. You and Lawrence knew in the back of your minds that hey, if we nail this, these guys could one day buy us. Is that? Yeah, that's a hundred percent fair. And it was, I I wouldn't even say it was an ulterior motive. It was, it was explicit. It was when talking with folks at apartments.com back in the day, there was a discussion back when Dick Burke was the CEO of look at some point, if this becomes big enough, this could be a potential acquisition target for you guys. And so that was something that I didn't really shy away from and, and I think tried to embrace and say, let's, let's work together to get to that state where we've got a years of working together and, and our businesses are complementary and would make sense together. I'm glad uh, you raised this because I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be very squeamish about the sale process and, the, and, and, and kind of, it's almost like a dirty word. You don't want to talk about it. Whereas what you're saying is, no, we kind of embraced it. We built these partnerships and it was out in the open uh, one day that, you know, you'd be ready and the company would be ready and that there'd obviously be a deal to be had. So that, I, I love that transparency. It's cool. Yeah. We were, I mean, we were also venture back. So as a, as a fiduciary, as a CEO of a venture-backed company, I think it's one of the CEO's most important jobs is to create that optionality for the yeah. company. 
Who was who, who? So you got into conversations with Realtor.com. Did you like? And, and as you say, they bought you as opposed to you selling to them. Um, I get that. And did you also shop it around a bit, or did you get like sign a uh, a no shop clause kind of early in the process? Yeah, so our our experience was we were going down this path with the big financial services firm. So this yep. was about two years ago. This was August of 2020. And, and had you signed an LOI with the financial services company, like a no shop clause? And no, no, it was pre that. It was it was a week before we were, we were told that was going to happen. Okay. And so setting the stage, we had I, I discussed with. Our board members and I said, "Look, we're we're down this path. We've been told to expect an LOI next week, and but I think I owe it to you and our investors and ourselves to reach out to the five to ten other people that I know personally that would make sense." And so I actually reached out to someone at Realtor.com, Todd. At the t- who was with the company at the time and said, you know, I know rentals are not a core part of your strategy. However, we may be going through this process with someone wanted to give you a heads up and, and see if this would be interesting. Um, and just strange turn of events, the realtor.com strategy had shifted a bit in the few months since I had last talked with them. And he got back to me and said, are you free for a call at 10 a.m. tomorrow? And then within a couple of weeks, we had kind of a first first proposal on what an acquisition could look like. Wow. Uh, so many questions about that. Todd, what was Todd's title? Yeah, Todd was a product manager, senior product manager responsible for the rentals business at the time, which of which there wasn't, wasn't really a rentals business to speak of. Got it. Okay. So he was sort of a business unit leader of a very small business unit within a giant company. Yeah. If I could characterize it that way. And so you had about 10 of these conversations of the 10, how many responded favorably? So yeah, let's, let's jump on a call. I think all of them said, let's at least hop on a call and talk. Wow. Okay. And and I I think that was just a, a result of, I knew these people very well. And they were all, I think, some of them probably knew that there was no chance, but they were all at least interested and curious to learn more. Got it. Got it. And so where does it go from there? So you've got these 10 conversations, superficial at the time conversations, but it sounds like Realtor.com got fairly serious fairly quickly. They did. Um, And I think what happened was... Realtor.com's strategy had shifted a bit where they said, look, we're going to invest in this category. And based on on that, they were prepared to move quickly. We had already been going down this path with someone else. So our data room was fully populated. Everything was there and they could click through and see, you know, this is real that this company is obviously engaged in another process. And Realtor.com and News Corp, they're professionals when it comes to evaluating these things and said, if, if we want this asset, we're going to have to move fast. How did their valuation compare to 
the valuation on the table with the financial services company? The initial valuations were call it similar, um, which um, would not have been. Again, we had just raised capital a few months before, and so it was not likely to get our investors excited enough to sell at the time. But I think through some discussion and some more discussion around strategic opportunities to do things together, we were both able to get to a place where our investors, our board was comfortable you know, moving forward with the, the deal. That's really cool because it allows, I mean, again, you don't have to agree that it just occurred to me that you could use that as a, as a point of kind of an investment or like a negotiation tactic in the sense that you could say, look, I, I, I'm fine with evaluation. It's just these damn investors over here that have kicked in four and a half million bucks need a return on their investment. So I love you guys. I'd do the deal tomorrow. But this, these damn investors over here need a return. And lo and behold, it's true, right? I mean, they're not going to invest money if they don't want a return on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you were on the call, you know, two years ago. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly how that went. Who, yeah. who want to uh, 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 increase their valuation? I know your time is precious. You got to go to a call, so Ryan, I, I would talk to you for hours, but I but I know we can't. Um, I'm grateful for you spending the time sharing the story. Please let folks know how to reach out to you on social media or send them to a website. Uh, if you you know, where can they find you? Yeah, folks can find Avail at Avail.co. We're on all the social media at Hello Avail. And then if anyone's going through something similar, one of the things that I personally am doing a lot of now is both angel investing. I also um, spend a lot of time helping other founders. So if they want to reach out to me personally, my email is very straightforward. It's Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at Avail.co. Very more than more than willing to help and um, share experiences. That's awesome, Ryan. We'll put all that in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Ryan, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you, John. Great talking with you. And that is it for today's episode with Ryan Kuhn. Hope you enjoyed John's conversation with Ryan today. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, the News Corp 10K filing with the details of the Avail acquisition, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms referenced, go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you love today's episode, be sure you're subscribed to Built to Sell Radio and wherever you listen to the podcast. And if you love this podcast and want to help support Built to Sell Radio, then I would encourage you to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. It truly helps the show get in front of more listeners just like you. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts at helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.